Father in heaven, now we come to this, which is the very word of God. And we trust it. And we pray for Jerry as he brings this message to us. Believing as we do that you have worked in him in such a way that this message is from you through him for us. So we pray that we be attentive, that we listen well. And Father, that it work in us in such a way that we find areas in our own lives to make application. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning to you. When Bill mentioned that uh, seems like he's introducing a charter member, I want to see, would you raise your hands, how many of you were in the church when you were still meeting in the school? Let's see. Okay. Quite, quite a few of you. Okay. Well, you're the charter members, and I think I qualify because the first time I came to speak here at the church, it was to a men's retreat, and then on the following Sunday to speak at the church when you were still meeting at the school. So it has been quite a few years. And uh, it's always a delight to come back. I had the privilege of listening to Bill's sermons on the CDs. The used to be the cassette tapes, and now it's the CDs. Uh, and as I listen to them, I, I think you folks are so well taught that when I come to speak to you, I always feel I'm preaching to the choir. Are you familiar with that expression? Uh, but um, then I am encouraged by Peter's words in Second Peter 1.12, where he said, I will not neglect to remind you of these things, even though you know them. And so I think that my job, in fact, I have often thought that my role as a preacher of the gospel is to point out the obvious and to remind people of what they already know. And so I, that's the attitude with which I approach this message this morning as we turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Just one verse of scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We're going to look at this verse phrase by phrase this morning. So we're going to start with this word appeal. Now, there, this word is translated in various ways in the different translations. Uh, the King James Version, which I grew up on, said, I beseech you. The New International Version says, I urge you. I think the most accurate and the most helpful translation is that here in the English Standard Version. He says, I appeal to you. Now, in order for us to appeal, and you're going to find that uh, the reason this is just one verse is because I'm using this one verse to take us to other passages of Scripture to help us to understand what Paul is saying. And so the first other passage that we're going to is the little one-chapter book of Philemon, which is sandwiched in between Titus, you know, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, and then to Hebrews. And Philemon is just this one short personal letter to this man named Philemon. Let me give you the background on Philemon before we actually look at what I want to call our attention to in Paul's words. Philemon lived in the city of Colossae, which is now in western, in the area that is now western Turkey. Uh, he was a slave owner. He had a slave by the name of Onesimus. 
And at some time prior to the writing of this letter, Onesimus had run away and had made his way from western Turkey across Greece and over to Rome. And there he had, in the providence of God, had encountered the Apostle Paul. We do not know how this happened, whether he looked up Paul or whether he, quote, accidentally came upon Paul. Paul was in prison, so it's not as if they would, had met on the street someplace. So we think that, you know, probably Philemon, I'm sorry, Onesimus, I sometimes get those reversed, that Onesimus looked up Paul, and Paul leads him to Christ. Now, another factor in this, and we have to read between the lines to gather this, is that Onesimus had probably stolen something in, the, in his getting away, in his running away, because Paul... Uh, says in verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. But that's sort of reading between the lines. But the important thing is Onesimus had run away. He was, he was Philemon's legal property. So in that sense, he had, even if he had not actually taken money, he had stolen himself, so to speak, from Philemon. And in the course of time, in the grace of God, Paul had led him to Christ. And so uh, Onesimus is responding, he's growing, and Paul realizes that there is an issue that has to be dealt with, and that is that Onesimus has to go back to Philemon and make things right. Well, you can imagine what might happen in an ordinary relationship like this when a runaway slave returns to his master. It's not going to be a good situation. And so Paul writes this letter to send along with Onesimus to Philemon. And with that background, I want to begin reading at verse 8. He says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Two words here I want to call your attention to, the word command and the word required. He says, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake... I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Now, what is it that Paul could have commanded Philemon to do? What is it that was required of Philemon? And that which was required of Philemon was to forgive Onesimus of this horrendous sin against him because Philemon is now a brother in Christ. And the scripture is very clear, and Paul teaches us over and over, and the Lord Jesus teaches us this in the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, that we are to forgive because we have been forgiven. And in fact, uh, I think that I preached this sermon from uh, Matthew 18 a year or two ago here at this very church, and I brought out the, the tremendous difference between the debt that the first servant owed and the debt that the second one owed. And I said that that simply illustrates our debt to God compared to the debt of anyone else against us. And so even though this was an egregious wrong that Philemon did, he was not only legally wrong, but also morally wrong in, in running away. Nevertheless, Paul is writing to him, asking him to forgive Onesimus for love's sake. 
But I want you to see here, Paul could have commanded. He says, though I am bold enough, he said, I, I could do this, Philemon. I could write to you and say, it is your duty to forgive Onesimus, regardless of how much he has wronged you, because you must forgive him even as God has forgiven you in Christ. Paul said, I could do that. But he said, I prefer to appeal to you. And this word is the very same word. It's not often translated the same. It is, fortunately, in the ESV. But it's the very same word that the Apostle Paul is using in Romans 12.1 when he says, I appeal to you by the mercy of God. What is he saying to us in this? He's saying, I want you to joyfully do what it is your duty to do. I want you to joyfully do what it is your duty to do. Make no mistake about it. We have certain duties. God's commands are not suggestions. They are commands, as has been often said. But Paul doesn't want us to obey God's commands just out of a sense of duty. He wants us to respond because of what God has done for us. And so in saying to Philemon, though I could command you to do what is required, I prefer to appeal to you for love's sake. In the same attitude, the same frame of mind, with the same background, he says to us back in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Whereas Paul is going to present a challenge to us. But in saying, instead of saying, this is what you must do, I mean, after all, all that God has done for you, this is what you must do for him. He says, I appeal to you. It's the same word. It's the same frame of mind. It's the same attitude with which Paul wrote that letter to Philemon that he appeals to the Romans and through that to us today. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Now, what is it that Paul wants us to do? In the case of Philemon, it was, of course, to receive Onesimus back, to forgive him, and to actually receive him as a brother in Christ. Here in Romans, Paul says, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The appeal is to present ourselves as living sacrifice. The body here, I believe, though commentators differ on this, but I believe in this case that in Paul's mind, the body stands for the whole person who actually acts through the body. As you think about it, everything we do, we do through our physical body. Even our brain, of course, is a part of our body, which means that your thoughts are are an expression of your body, your emotions, your desires are an expression of your body, uh, your intellect. So Paul is saying, present your entire selves. Present your thought life to God. Present your emotions and your desires to God. Present your eyes to God so that you look at what he wants you to see. Present your tongue, your mouth to God so that you say that which he wants you to say. Present your entire being to God as a living sacrifice. This is the appeal that Paul is making to us. Now, when the Apostle Paul uses the word sacrifice... I think it's obvious that he has in mind, or at least he's using a word brought over from the Old Testament, and particularly the sacrificial system as it is spelled out for us in the first six chapters of the book of Leviticus, and then chapter 16, the great day of atonement. 
There were a number of sacrifices, were several, not a number, but several sacrifices that were to be offered at particular times. And one of those, uh, I think, represents best to us what Paul is getting at. Now, whether Paul had this particular sacrifice in mind, I do not know. But when I think of what Paul is appealing to us, my mind goes to the burnt offering. The one special sacrifice or unique sacrifice called the burnt offering. There were two things about the burnt offering that were unique. First of all, it was the only one of the offerings in which the entire animal was consumed upon the altar. Now, let me say, they were always skinned, so we're not talking about the hide. But once the skin is removed, um, and a couple of the offerings, part of the offering, part of the animal is consumed upon the altar, and part of it is given to the priest to eat, and in one case, even to the offerer himself and his family to partake of. But in the case of the burnt offering, the entire animal was consumed on the altar. Now, I think you can readily make the application that our entire selves are to be presented uh, uh, as a living sacrifice to God. The second thing that was unique about the burnt offering was that in addition to the times when the individual Israelites would offer a burnt offering on some occasion, it was the role of the priests on duty to offer a burnt offering every morning and again in the evening, in, in the words of the scripture, so that the fire would not go out on the altar. That it was, it was always a burnt offering being consumed upon the altar because there had been an uh, animal put on the altar in the morning and then again in the evening to burn through the night. So it was called a continual burnt offering. And again, I think that you could readily make the application of that. Paul is not saying this is a one-time deal. Don't offer yourself today and then next week kind of pull yourself off the altar, so to speak. But it's a continuum. And I've found in my own life that just as the priest needed to offer a new burnt offering every morning and again every evening, so I need to continually reaffirm my offering to God as a living sacrifice. One of the things that I've found, in, uh, particularly in the student world, is that we can have a weekend conference and uh, the students can be quite strongly challenged and they very readily respond and we're grateful for that. And uh, we can have a missions offering and they give multibucks. I don't know where they get them, but they give them. And, uh, you know, and it's great. It's a great experience. But I also know that if they go back to the campus and they're not continually living in the reminder of that, that that flame, that fervor, that zeal for God, that willingness to give themselves to him, themselves and all that they have, it's, if that's not continually reaffirmed, pretty soon it dwindles away. And they're back into thinking about, you know, who am I going to marry and what's my career going to be and how much money am I going to make and these kinds of things. And it's not true. It's true not only of students. It's true of all of us. We can sort of, so to speak, pull ourselves off the altar. And so just as that burnt offering had to be offered continually, so you and I need to offer ourselves continually unto God. Now, the truth is that objectively we already belong to him. 
When we offer ourselves unto him, we're actually offering that which belongs to him already. Paul says in another context in 1 Corinthians 6, You are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So the objective reality is that none of us belong to ourselves. We have been, we're not our own, we have been bought with a price. Or as Paul says in his letter to Timothy, Jesus has purified to himself us as his own possession. We are Christ's possession. We are not our own. He has bought us with the price that he paid on the cross. That is objective reality. But the Apostle Paul wants us to affirm this in our own lives by subjectively offering ourselves, saying, Lord, I know that I belong to you, and so I present myself to you continually, day after day, as a living sacrifice. But Paul doesn't want us to just do this and say, well, since I belong to you, God, my only choice, you know, if I want to be honest with you, my only choice is to present myself. So, Lord, here I am. I don't like it, but here I am. No, that's not at all. Paul wants us to acknowledge this, not out of duty, but out of desire. That is to say, Paul wants us to desire to do what is is our duty to do. And that's one of the primary principles of the Christian life, of growing in Christ, of pursuing holiness, is that we desire to do what it is our duty to do. And so the Apostle Paul presents to the people a very strong motive for doing what is their duty to do. He appeals to them to do what is is their duty to do, not out of a sense of duty, but he wants them to desire this. And so he presents to them a very strong motive. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, Paul has been talking about the mercy of God in the immediately preceding three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And there are a couple of things that I want us to see of of all that Paul says about the mercy of God. In chapter 9, he says that God's mercy is sovereign. That is, it is up to God. God doesn't owe us anything. So it's up to God to extend his mercy as he pleases. He he says in Romans 9.15, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. We are literally at the mercy of God. And it is his call. It is his choice. And God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The other truth I want us to see, which seems like a paradox in view of what I've just said, is in chapter 11, verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So God, on the one hand, he says, I'm sovereign. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And here he says, I will have mercy upon all. Now, how we relate these, that's God's business. But what Paul is really saying here, he's saying God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That is, the only way to come to God is through his mercy which, of course, he has expressed to us in the death and the life of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has extended mercy. 
And that's why the Apostle Paul can say, be reconciled to God. And so on the one hand, we see that God is sovereign. On the other hand, we see that he has consigned all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy upon all. And whatever else this says, it says that the only way we can come to God is through his mercy. You remember that the tax collector in the temple uh, with the Pharisee and the tax collector and the Pharisee was very confident of his self-righteousness and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men are. I do this, this and this. And particularly, I'm not like this tax collector over here. But the tax collector would not even lift his head to heaven. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in that context, the word merciful means forgive me. Mercy is basically in its in its widest sense is compassion or pity in action. It is responding to someone's desperate condition. And God has had pity. God has had compassion. God has had mercy. And and in, in that sense, mercy always means or always refers to God's forgiveness. That's the principal way in which God can show us mercy is to forgive us of our sin through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, consider the mercy of God. Now, again, I want to turn to another passage of Scripture in order to help us realize the extent of God's mercy. I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at our pitiful condition. Remember, I said mercy is a response to a pitiful condition. The Good Samaritan, as he came upon the man who had been beaten by the robbers and was lying alongside the road almost dead. And the, the uh, Good Samaritan had compassion on him and, and showed him mercy. But here's our condition. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now the word dead is an absolute term. By contrast, sickness is a relative term. You can be more or less sick on a given day, or you can be more or less sick than your spouse or your neighbor. So we realize that sickness is a relative term. But dead is what we would call an absolute term. It admits of no degrees. Two men can be lying on a slab in a morgue. One could have been a multimillionaire, and the other could have been a homeless man sleeping under the bridge. And they are both alike dead. And one is just as dead as the other. It admits of no degrees. There is no relativity. It's an absolute word. And so when Paul says, when we were dead, he's not talking about that we were better or worse than our neighbor. He says we were dead, spiritually dead. Now, another factor about dead is the dead person can't do anything. You know, you can go into, the, the doctor can go into the hospital room and say, take this medicine. And the person can respond, take the medicine. But you can't do anything for a dead person. He's dead. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We could not help ourselves. We could not, as it were, take any of God's medicine. We're dead. The second thing, he says, is that we were following the course of this world. 
That's just the sum total of society that is living in rebellion against God, either passive or active rebellion against God. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, that's a reference, of course, to the Satan, to the devil. And so Paul is saying that not only were you following just the course of society in which you live, but you were also, even though you may not have realized it, you were actually following the devil, doing what he willed. And then he says, um, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So we were not only, you might say, slaves to our society that we lived in, slaves to the devil, but slaves to our own passions, our own sinful passions, whether it's the passions of immorality or the passions of anger, the passions of this, that, and the other. He says we were slaves to that. So we're dead on the one hand. We're slaves to the world, the devil, the flesh on the other. And then above all, he says at the end of verse 3, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This was our pitiful condition. We're dead. We're slaves. We're children of wrath. That's God's wrath. That is, we are, we are under the wrath of God. Every, under, every unbeliever right now, even as I speak, every unbeliever in this planet lives right now under the wrath of God. That wrath is suspended, but it's there. Now, we should not think of the wrath of God like we think of the sinful wrath of human beings when somebody really loses his temper big time and he punches a hole in the sheetrock wall or he punches some individual, this kind of thing. But you might say this, that God's wrath is his justice in action. And we were children of wrath. We were objects of his wrath, even though his wrath was suspended. That was our pitiful condition. That cries out for mercy, does it not? When you're dead, when you're a slave, when you're an object of God's wrath, does that not cry out for mercy? Do you see why that tax collector cried out, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you're a believer, this is the way you once were. You may have grown up in a fine Christian home. You may have trusted Christ at an early age. But you were born dead. You were born an object of wrath. We have a three-month-old granddaughter living over in the Middle East. And we were there visiting at uh, Christmas. And, you know, I get to hold her. And Jane gets to change the diapers. And, uh, you know, I get to hold her and she changes the diapers. Um, But, you know, I look at little Sarah and I say, she's an object of wrath. There's no getting around it. But then Paul continues. Paul has a little three-letter word that I love because every time he uses it, he always sets it in contrast. It's the word but, B-U-T. We were objects of wrath, but God... Being rich in mercy. Notice that word. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you are saved. 
this is God's mercy. You see, we cannot appreciate God's mercy until we appreciate our pitiful condition. And those first three verses describe our pitiful condition. We were dead. We could not help ourselves. We were slaves. We were under the dominion of Satan. We were objects of God's wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, reaches out to us, makes us alive. God comes to us through his Holy Spirit, and he gives us life, and he enables us to to realize our sinful condition, to realize our need of Christ, and to trust him. That's all the action of God's mercy. And Paul would have that in mind when he says back in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. God is rich in mercy. But we were objects of his wrath. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I ask you today, do you see yourself as an object of God's mercy? Do you see yourself as an object of God's mercy? Do you see yourself as having been, if you're now a child of God, as having been in that pitiful condition? And remember that God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And to the degree that you realize that you are an object of God's mercy, to that degree you will joyfully present your body to him as a living sacrifice. Let me give you an example of what this might look like. This is a story, a beautiful story, an actual historical event that occurred. This is not a parable. This was a real event that's recorded for us in Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. And it's the story of the sinful woman who anointed the feet of Jesus. Now, as we look at the story, I'm reminded of the words of Paul Harvey. When Those of you who are old enough to have listened to Paul Harvey, you remember that he comes to a place and he says, and now for the rest of the story. And what we see here, I believe, is actually the rest of the story. So let me give you the beginning of the story. This sinful woman, and her sin is not identified. She may or not have been an, an immoral woman. But she was notorious in her sin because later on we see in the story that's recorded for us in Luke 7 that Simon the Pharisee recognizes and he says, if this man Jesus were a prophet, he wouldn't allow her to touch him because she is a sinner. So she had a reputation, whatever it was, whatever her sin was, she had a reputation. In order for this story to make sense, we have to assume that at some prior occasion, that is prior to the story that Luke is recounting for us, that this woman had had an encounter with Jesus in which she had become acutely aware, painfully aware of her sin and then had received his assurance of forgiveness. And so now, subsequent to that experience, Jesus is invited to the house of Simon the Pharisee for dinner. And the woman hears that he has been invited to their house. Now, let me give you a little bit of the cultural setting. First of all, most of you are aware that they did not sit in chairs at a dining room table like we do. But rather, it was a low table. They, they lay uh, 
toward the table with their head toward the table, resting on their left elbow, uh, their feet out behind them. So that's one thing. The second thing is it was not unusual for uninvited guests to come into the house where this dinner party was being held. They didn't, so to speak, crash the party. It was just that was part of the custom. They would come in, stand or sit around the perimeter of the room and listen in on the dinner table conversation. But what would have been very unusual is for this woman who is a known sinner to come to dare to come into the house of a self-righteous Pharisee. But she hears that Jesus is at dinner at Simon's house, so she either goes to her home and gets or she goes and buys this flask of precious ointment. Now, there is one other occasion, a different occasion altogether, when someone else anointed Jesus' feet with ointment. That was Mary, the, uh, not the mother, but the sister of Martha and Lazarus. In John 12, there is the account of, of Mary anointing the feet of Jesus. And the remark is made in that occasion that that flask of ointment was worth a year's wages. Now, you can do your own math, whatever your year's wages, that would be the cost. So... Uh, Luke does not specify that, but we can assume that at the very least it was an expensive flask of ointment. So she comes to anoint the feet of Jesus. She is on a mission, so she doesn't just take her seat around the perimeter of the room. She goes straight to Jesus. But as she approaches Jesus, preparing to anoint his feet with this ointment, all of a sudden, what she had not planned, she bursts into tears. Not just a few tears trickling down her cheeks, but profuse, spontaneous flow of tears, so much so that she has wet Jesus' feet. Now, another thing, as we think of, as we try to imagine that scene, Jesus' feet had not been washed. Later on, Jesus tells Simon, you didn't wash my feet. And so her tears are flowing down onto Jesus' dirty feet. And so she does something else that's unthinkable. First of all, she's dared to invade the Pharisee's house. Now she undoes her long tresses and reaching and bowing down, she takes her long hair and she wipes his feet. Remember, these are not clean feet. The mixture of the dust and the tears had produced some degree of mud, shall we say. And she cleanses his feet. With her hair. And then she pours on this expensive ointment. Now, why did she do this? When Jesus told Simon the Pharisee a little parable, he said, Simon, there was a moneylender who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 denarii. Now, without going into the a denarii was a day's wages, but the main thing is one owed 10 times as much as the other. And he said, and, and when they could not pay, he just freely forgave them both. Which of them, Simon, would love him the most? And I think Simon knew that he was trapped. So he said, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. And Jesus said, you're absolutely correct. And then he turned to the woman and he said, Simon, do you see this woman? When I came into your house, you did not wash my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You did not anoint my head with just common olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with a precious ointment. You did not give me the usual customary kiss, but she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
And then he said, Simon, and I'm paraphrasing what Jesus said to help us to understand. He said, Simon, your problem is this. He who is forgiven little loves little. Simon, you do not realize your need of forgiveness. So there's no sense of love. You are a self-righteous Pharisee. Now, obviously, and we go back to the parable, which of them loved him the most? And Simon said, the one who is forgiven the most. And so we know that what Jesus is saying, in effect, though he does not use these words, he who has forgiven much loves much. Simon, the reason she has done this is because she has been forgiven much. Not only that, but she knew she had been forgiven much. And I would ask you today, if you have Simon on one end of the spectrum and the sinful woman on the other end, which one are you closest to? Which one? The one who has sensed no need of forgiveness, therefore loves little, or the one who is acutely aware of how much you've forgiven and consequently you love much. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul wants us to do out of loving response, just as the woman, out of loving response, came. Why was it that the woman did this? It was a combination of the awareness of how much she had been forgiven or how much she needed to be forgiven with the awareness of Christ's love for her. This is why Paul says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Now, one further thought on this. He says, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice he describes this living sacrifice with two expressions. First of all is holy and the other is acceptable to God. Now, the word holy sometimes in the New Testament refers to our character, holy character. When God says, be holy because I am holy, he's referring to our character. But most often when the word holy is used, it is expressing an act of God whereby he sets us apart for himself. That is the basic meaning of the word holy is set apart. And so Paul is saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as one that is set apart for the worship and service of God. And then he says, and acceptable to God. I want us to look at one other passage of Scripture outside of Romans 12, and that is in 1 Peter 2, verse 5. And you don't need to turn to this, just one verse. I'll read it to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 5. Paul says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Paul said, uh, Peter says we're living stones, we're being built up into a spiritual house, into the temple of God, we're to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, Peter does not explain what those spiritual sacrifices are, but I think we can safely assume he's thinking of the whole gamut of the Christian life, our worship, our, our service, our obedience to God, presenting of ourselves to him, this would be a spiritual sacrifice. But notice he says, to offer a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our very best worship, our very best obedience, our most sacrificial service, all that we can do, the very best that we can do, in and of itself, is not acceptable to God because everything we do is tainted with our sinful nature. But the Lord Jesus Christ takes our deeds, imperfect as they are and stained as they are, and he says to the Father, receive them for my sake. Even our obedience is acceptable to God only through Jesus Christ. We can never take credit for anything that we do. It's always by his grace. It's always by his mercy. It's always through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says to us, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, even though that sacrifice is going to be imperfect. But remember that it's acceptable to the Father through the shed blood and the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Our Father, we realize that the implications of being a living sacrifice so oftentimes are veiled to us. Life can go along quite normal, quite pleasant, and then all of a sudden we're presented with something and God says, offer this as a living sacrifice. And I pray, Father, that not only would we reaffirm each day ourselves as belonging to you, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, But particularly, Father, in those times when it seems as if you have required of us more than we can offer, that we might remember, remember your mercy. And in view of your mercy, that we would even in those times offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.